we're so blessed to be part of your church. And, and Lord, I don't think uh, a lot of us really understand what that means. I mean, just the fact that we've been turned into living stones, as we're going to see in this text today, Lord. We've been made alive. We've been made rocks uh, of stability like, like Jesus Christ, Lord, that, that you've done so much for us uh, through those uh, great events of the fall and, and then, Lord, your redemption. And, and help us to, to see today just uh, how wonderful it is to be part of your church. And, Lord, also to make sure we are part of that church, not not part of Calvary Chapel, uh, so to speak, Lord, but part of the true and living church. And, and uh, there's a difference, Lord. And I, I, just, I just ask today that we all are, are uh, convicted, Lord, that we're all reminded and blessed by what it means to be your children and to be part of your body. And so uh, teach us these truths today. Uh, teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask that in Christ's name. Amen. In 1970, uh, Huntington, West Virginia, experienced a great tragedy. I don't know if you remember the story, but the plane carrying the Marshall football team, five coaches and 25 boosters, crashed just short of the runway uh, at the home airport, killing all 78 on board. And obviously, the community was devastated by such a tragedy. But out of the ashes of that tragedy, there arose this spirit of unity like the community had never seen before. Pride in their college, pride in their community. They all felt like they were, because they weren't on that plane, they had a new lease on life, and they, and they, if you talk to the people of that community after that time, they, and they did interviews with those people, they all felt that, you know, it could have been them. And just how precious life truly is. And it brought this community together. And in uh, 2000, and in the year 2000, on November the 11th, they erected a, a 12 by 23 foot bronze football player at the entrance of the stadium. And the dedication plaque read as follows, and let me read it to you. It says, we are Marshall. The memor this memorial will stand for all time as a symbol of community resilience and as a reminder of the awesome strength that can flow from a people united with a common bond. It represents the life, legacy, and legend that is Marshall University football. But did you, not the, so much the, about the part of about football, but did you catch the main gist of, of what that plaque said? Let me read it to you again. This memorial is a symbol of community resilience and as a reminder of the awesome strength that can flow from a people united with a common bond. When that plane went down, the people of Huntington no longer saw Marshall University as just a college in the town. It became their university. The students no longer saw it as a school that they went to. They became part of Marshall University. Well, in today's text, Peter's going to talk to us about another community, the community of the church that's risen out of the ashes of great tragedy, two great tragedies to be exact. The first tragedy happened about 6,000 years ago. Do you remember that tragedy? Here God had created a perfect earth, a perfect environment. He had created paradise. And he had placed Adam and Eve in paradise, and, and it was the absolute utopian environment. I mean, it had perfect food. It had perfect weather. Reminds you of Lafayette, right? The last past week. No, not. Maybe today. We're getting there today. It, they were the perfect couple. They were in perfect love. They were perfectly loved by a perfect God. And all they had to do to keep that perfect situation was to love God back. That's all they had to do. And how were they to love God back? By being obedient to God. 
And there was only one thing they had to do to be obedient to God. And these guys were stupid. But don't laugh at them. If they placed you there, you wouldn't be probably lasted as long as they did. They might have lasted a week. You might have lasted 24 hours. But here they were, and all God had told them, you can't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will die. Just do that for me. If you'll do that for me, you'll show me that you love me. Because I created you with a choice. I created you with a choice so that you can have a choice to either love me or to hate me. And when we don't obey God, what are we choosing? We're choosing to hate God. And, hey, they did what okay for a while, and they walked and talked with God, and they were in the garden, and then the serpent came. And he said, you know, surely you can't believe God. Surely you're not going to die if you eat of this fruit. If you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. You will know the difference between good and evil. And they just—they did the one thing that would kick them out of that garden, the one thing that would break up this perfect situation they were in. They ate of the fruit, and as soon as they ate of that fruit, the glory that they had in them departed, and they knew that they were naked, and they had hurt the very heart of God. They had hurt him deeply. And at that point, they were kicked out of paradise and they were sentenced to death. They didn't die that very moment, but they died later on. And sin and death entered the world. Talk about a great tragedy. That's a great tragedy. But let me tell you about another great tragedy that took place some 4,000 years later. When God became man, and he emptied himself of his glory in order to save his prized creation. And he came to this earth as a little babe in Bethlehem to grow up and die for our sins. Now, now how could that be a tragedy? How could the advent of Jesus Christ be a tragedy? Well, let me tell you how it's a tragedy. Let, let me let John tell you from the, his, his gospel, the first chapter. Listen to what he says. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. You talk about a tragedy. Well, you know, Adam and Eve knew him. They walked and talked with him, but things had gotten so bad in this world when Jesus returned, they didn't even recognize him. His own people, the Jews, didn't recognize him. John goes on to say, he came into his own, and his own did not receive him. I mean, he was despised. He was rejected. And not, only, and not only did we turn him away and break his heart, we nailed him to a cross. Well, Pastor, I didn't nail him to a cross. The Jews and the Romans nailed him to a cross. I was reading in the news yesterday where there was a basketball, a state championship basketball game in Ohio between the largest Roman Catholic school and the largest Jewish school in the state. And the Roman Catholic fans were screaming out, chanting, Jew killer, I mean, Jesus killers, Jesus killers, Jesus killers. You know what? You don't have a clue about the gospel if you can do that. The Jews didn't kill Jesus. The Romans didn't kill Jesus. You and I killed Jesus. We're the ones that hung him to that cross. They were the instrument used by God, but we're the ones who killed Jesus. It was my sin that put Jesus on that cross. It was your sin that put Jesus on that cross. And so we're all Jew, Jew killers. But here's the good news. From the tragedy of that cross came a great victory. The victory we have in Jesus, and by his broken body and his shed blood, we have all been made whole we have all been redeemed amen and we've all been sanctified and we will be glorified we've been made a community we are the church we are the church 
Now, Peter's going to talk about that community today here in, in uh, chapter number two, as we go to chapter number two. And, and, uh, but here, here's what I want you to see, and I want all of you to see this. Jesus didn't die for you, and he didn't create you and put Adam and Eve in the garden and allow the fall. He didn't do all of these things, this redemptive plan, so that you could go to church. He didn't do that. What did he do it for? So that you and I could be the church. We are the church. You know, it really bothers me when I hear people say, I go to, where, are you a Christian? Yeah, I go to church at Calvary Chapel. Or I go to church at First Baptist. Or I go to church at the Presbyterian or the Methodist church. Going to church will not save you. That doesn't make you part of the church. We are the church, and Peter's going to show us what it means to be the church today as we look at, at chapter number 2, a few verses here. So, so go with me to chapter number 2 of 1 Peter, and let's pick up in verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, he says, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all Evil speaking. Well, that sounds like a Republican debate. Yeah. Sounds like a Democratic debate. It sounds like any political debate. But it's not the way we should speak. He says, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now, whenever we see the therefore, we ask what it's there for. And, and, and what it always does, or what it generally does, is link us back to the preceding passage. And in this particular case, it links us back to chapter 1, verses uh, 24 and 25, where Peter quotes from Isaiah. And listen to what he says. Reading in 24, he says, All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withered, and the flower fa fa falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. So what he's saying right there is that all the things of this world are passing away. All the things of this world are passing away. Uh, as the flower withers, so do the things of this world. They're all withering away. And the only thing that's going to remain are those things that are sanctified by the word of God that endures forever. Therefore, since... That's the only thing that's going to remain, and that's the only thing that should remain. Therefore, lay aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. In other words, we're to get rid of those things because they don't fit the people of God. They don't fit the people of the word. And so they fit the people of the world, but not the people of the word. And that's who we are. And therefore, we're to lay those things aside. Well, that's easier said than done. I mean, you drive around in Lafayette long enough, and, and you're going to have some malice, and you're going to have some evil speaking. Some of you are. You hang around with the wrong person too long, you're going to have some of those. I mean, how do we put those things away? How do we put them away? How do we put them away? Friends, the same way we put anything away, we make a choice. We say that's not who I am, and I'm going to lay that stuff aside. I'm not going to talk like that anymore. I'm not going to be like the rest of the world. I'm going to lay that aside. Paul says over in Colossians ch chapter 3, he says, you yourselves put away anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Now, this is a great lesson to learn because this is the way you put away any sin. The, you don't just get down on your knees and say, God, please take this sin out of my life. He's not going to take it away. I mean, if your problem's whiskey and, and uh, you drink way too much whiskey and you sit there and you, you put the whiskey there on the altar, you say, Lord, please take that away. Please take that away. Please take that away. What should you do? 
You need to get, you need to lay aside that whiskey. You need to go and throw, if that whiskey's causing you problems, you need to take that whiskey and you need to go throw it in a garbage can, a garbage can far away from your house, because I promise by the end of the day you'll be digging it out if you don't. You gotta, you yourself have to put those things away. Now, here's the problem. We need supernatural help in all order to get that, in order to do that. To have the ability to do that, we can't do that on our own. We have to make the choice, though. First step, you've got to make the choice that you want to put it away. But then you need supernatural help. And where do we get that supernatural help? Well, Paul tells us in the same passage in Colossians chapter 3 that we're to set our minds on things above and not on things of this earth. If you want victory over sin, first of all, you've got to make a choice to put that sin away, and then you have to set your mind on things above and not on things below. If you do that, you'll have the power to put it away. That's, that's what he's saying right here. He's saying, lay aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, uh, and evil speaking. And we do that by making a choice, and we do that by setting our mind on things above and not on things below. Now, how do we set our mind on things above? How do you set your mind on things above? We, we know how. There's two ways. How do we do it? We pray, and we study the Word. We study the Word. And that's why in the context right here, look at what he says in verse number 2. As newborn babes, you're to... You're to uh, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. As you grow and as you're sanctified, malice and deceit and those things begin to fall off of you like flies. But you're not going to grow unless you're in the word of God. You have to be in the word of God. You've got to desire the word of God as a newborn baby desires pure milk. I don't confuse this with the metaphor that Paul uses in, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 or in Hebrews 5 when he compares milk to meat. This is an entirely different context here. I mean, as believers, he tells us in those passages that we're to get past milk and we're to drink, I mean, we're, we're to drink milk but then get past milk and eat meat, the meat of the word. Here he's referring to the pure milk as all of the word, the meat and the milk. And so he's making this analogy, or he's using this metaphor of a baby. How many of you have been around babies? Every one of you. What do babies love the most? Milk. They love milk. Why do they love milk? Because milk satisfies them. And they don't know it, but milk also gives them the nutrition to keep them alive. If a baby doesn't drink his milk, a baby's going to die. Why would, Paul, why would Peter use this metaphor right here? Because if you don't drink your milk, if you don't desire the milk, you are going to die spiritually, and you are not going to grow thereby. I'm going to tell you what, if you're here today and you never read your Bible other than coming to this church on Sunday, you're dying. You're dying spiritually. And if you want to grow spiritually, you need to take some time out Get before the Lord in prayer and pull the word out and read his word, and it will supernaturally change you. How many people in this room believe the word of God will supernaturally change you? How many? I'm not going to ask the next question. What does that say? If you really believe that, then you need to be reading it. It needs to be a priority in your life. I'm not putting you under some kind of law. You've got to read the Bible in a year. You, got to, you don't want to put yourself there. You want to get out the word and man as a baby. You want to desire the word. And let me tell you what kind of word you want to desire. You want to desire the pure milk of the word, not the watered down version of the word. I don't know about you, but I can't stand watered down milk. They call it skim milk. That's the kind of milk my wife buys. And she puts it, pours it over her cereal, and it makes me sick. I mean, I might as well take my cereal and put it under the sink and pour water over it as far as I'm concerned. Sure, there's no fat in it, but there aren't any nutrients left in it either. And that's the way the watered-down version of the Word is. You need the pure Word. What's the pure Word? 
The pure word is the word in context. In context of the verse we're looking at. In context of the passage we're looking at. In context of the chapter we're looking at. In context of the book we're looking at. In context of the entire Bible. That's the pure word. That's the unadulterated word of God. But I got to tell you, friends, most of the word that's going out today is the adulterated word of God. And what's the adulterated word of God? The adulterated word of God is the watered-down version. It's the word of God taken out of its context in order to make it say what you want it to say. And if that's all the word you have, it is not going to grow you. In fact, you're going to keep right on dying spiritually. In order for the word to give you its nutrients, it has to be the pure milk. It has to be God's fat and God's nutrition. And so you want to take the word in its context. Now, I'll tell you the watered-down version, it'll tickle your ears. It'll tickle your ears, and, man, I can take little verses out of here, and I can make you just as happy as a lark today. And that's good. I believe the word does make you happy. But the word also convicts. The word also says things like, Lay aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. And if you don't, you're not acting like a child of God. And God doesn't like that. God loves you, but he doesn't like that. And if you don't straighten it out, he's going to do something about it. He, he, tough love is what it's called. Discipline is what it's called. Well, Lord, I can't do it. Yeah, you can, under my power, the Lord would say to you. Using my word, using my word to sanctify you, to change your heart, to change who you are. Because Jesus said, out of the heart comes the issues of life. Out of the heart. And if your mouth is spouting out all sorts of evil things, then the reason it is is because you've got a bad heart. And you've got to change that heart. You can't change that heart. But the word supernaturally can change your heart. It can change you. And instead of becoming liars and hypocrites, we become people of integrity. You know what the word gives you integrity? Studying the word gives you integrity. Man, you, make the, you, you have the mind of Christ. All of a sudden you have integrity. You know what's right and wrong when you study the word. And instead of spouting out evil and curses, you know what we, we begin to speak? We begin to speak blessings. You know, I, if, I like hanging around people that are in the Word. I'm not talking about legalistic. I'm talking about people even in the Word because they desire it as a newborn baby desires milk. Because they speak blessings. They speak positive things into your life. They don't speak negative things into your life. They're being changed by the Word of God, and you see that change in them. And that change affects you, and you receive those blessings. But there's a condition. There's a condition to studying the Word of God. There is a condition. Look at verse number 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. In other words, you're to desire the Word of God as, as a baby desires pure milk. Uh, you, you're to hunger after that Word. You know that Word's good for you. You know you love that Word. But that only... You know, here's the test. If you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. You know, people tell me, man, Pastor, I don't like the Word of God. Especially that version with a thousand these in it. Man, I can't make, I can't make, uh, uh, I can't understand any of that. I mean, I use the nearly inspired version. The NIV, <laughs> the, whatever that is. I don't care. What version you use? Until you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, this Bible's not going to make any sense to you. This Bible's not going to do you any good. Until you've tasted of the grace of God, this Bible's not going to do you any good. And if you don't like the Bible, let me tell you why you don't like the Bible. If you don't like reading the Bible, it's the last thing you want to do. It's because you haven't tasted of the grace of Jesus Christ. You haven't tasted the grace of Jesus. What's the grace of Jesus Christ? It's back to those two tragedies. The fact that we've fallen. 
We, as mankind, we have fallen. We all fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. We've, we, we've all fallen. That's the first great tragedy. The second great tragedy is this. Yeah, we've fallen, but Jesus Christ has come to redeem us from that fall. You know, there's actually a third great tragedy. You know what that third great tragedy is? Your life is a tragedy before you're born again. My life was a tragedy before I was born again. Three tragedies there. Adam and Eve fell, and I fell right with them. Number two and number three, the tragedy is Jesus had to die on a cross for my sin. Tragedy of tragedies. But if you put your faith in the fact that he can redeem you from your sin, that he died not only for the sins of the world, he died for your sins. And you believe that, you hear the word of grace, and you put all of your trust in him, then you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Having believed, we saw in Ephesians chapter 1, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who gives us a desire for the word. If you don't have a hunger for the word, I, I'm not telling you this to judge you, but I'm telling you, check, your, check, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If you have no desire for this word, I don't know that you've tasted of the grace of Jesus Christ. You might go to church, but we are the church. And as the church, we desire the word of God. We know that the, it's the word of God that changes us and makes us like Christ. It's the word of God that gives us integrity. It's the word of God that allows us to lay aside malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and evil speaking. And once you've tasted of the grace, I don't care what version of the Bible you've got. Man, I, I, it was amazing to me. I should say the same thing about the King James. And I got saved and all of a sudden I could read it all. I mean, it's like I had a translator there. I did. His name is the Holy Spirit. And he began to translate the King James. Now, I used to do King James for the sake of maybe it being a little bit easier to read. And if you use the NIV, God bless you. I mean, you, you're going to be all right. You still, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna get the word. The, the word's in the NIV. Trust me, I'm joking about the NIV. But you do need to buy a new King James. And let me tell you what the word does. Most importantly, what the word does. I mean, we get saved by the word. We get sanctified by the word. But you know the most important thing the word does? It brings us into the presence of God. It leads us into the presence of God. We are the church. Where should we live? in the very presence of God. You're not going to get there if you're not in the word of God. Because look what it says in verse number four. He says, coming to him as to a living stone. What a sad statement now he gives us here. Rejected indeed by men. How many men? Most men. Most men and women reject Jesus Christ. They reject their creator. They reject God. But we come to him through his word. We come to him as a church. We are the church. We have the privilege to come to him to a living stone rejected by man but chosen by God and by the way precious. That's really no by the way. That's something we you won't know that unless you face those two tragedies. You won't know that unless you've seen the victory in Jesus. You won't know that unless you're in his word. But if you're in his word, he is precious. He's more precious than anything anywhere. He's more valuable than anything anywhere. And you know what the devil has designed this world to do? Let me tell you what he's designed it to do. He's designed it to lead you away from Jesus Christ. To get you to reject Jesus Christ. To get you to even hate Jesus Christ. 
to get you to do what Adam and Eve did, to get you to reject him and fall away from him and not believe him. That's what he wants to do, and that's what he's designed the world to do. Well, pastor, wait a minute now. I'm a Christian, and I, I, I don't hate Christ. You don't? Let me tell you what Jesus had to say about that. He said, you are either for me or you are against me. You hate me. You either gather together on my behalf or you scatter. You either love me or you hate me. Now, you might not see it that way, but let me tell you what, that's the way the Lord sees it. If you don't receive him as he's presented to us in this word, now, let me ask you those who believe, how is he presented in this word? Is he presented as a great philosopher? Is he presented as a great historical man? Is he uh, presented as a tragic figure who, who just by circumstance died on a cross and maybe that might help somebody somewhere? Is that the way he's presented? No, he's presented as God Almighty. As Jehovah God, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, Almighty God. That's who he's presented. You take him any other way and you reject him. You are rejecting him and you hate him. And you're on your way to hell if you don't repent. But we are the church. We are the people of the word, of this word. And the word of God gives us a different view of Jesus Christ than the world gets. A totally different view. I mean, there's been all sorts of movies about Jesus out lately. I think there's one out, The Young Messiah or something right now. I'd probably cringe to go see that. They're giving it great reviews, and even the Christian guys are giving it great reviews. But... You know, if you, put, if you do present anything about Jesus that's not true, anything, what are you doing? You're blaspheming. And I, and I don't know how you can be true when you don't know the facts about those times. And I'm not saying don't go see the movie, but, but boy, I'm a little leery of some of that stuff. And, and uh, because where do I get my bird's eye view of Jesus? Do I get it from movies? Do I get it from books? No, I get it from the Word of God. And it gives me a different view. What does it give me? Listen to what Peter says. He is a living stone. A living stone. A living rock is really the word. Now, that's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? When you think of stones, you don't think of living. I mean, in fact, we use the term stone dead to be as dead as you can be. But he's a living stone. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to him except, nobody comes to the Father except by him. I mean, he's living, he's alive, but he's also a stone in the sense that he's a rock, he's immovable. He's going nowhere. I don't care who in this society thinks they can get rid of Jesus Christ, they can try as hard as they like, but he is going nowhere. And his word endures forever, and his word is going nowhere. He is the rock of ages. And he's alive, and look what else. Look at the verse. He was chosen. He's rejected by men, rejected by this world, but that doesn't matter. Because who chose him? God chose him. God chose him before the foundation of the world to die for our sins. God chose him before the foundation of the world in eternity to be Prince of Peace, Everlasting King, Everlasting Father. He chose him for all of those things before the foundation of the world. He was chosen by God. And by the way, he's precious. He's precious. Precious. What does it mean, precious? And he's more valuable than anything anywhere. If Jesus is not the most valuable thing you have in your life, again, you've got a question if you tasted of the grace of God. 
If he's not the most valuable thing, what makes him valuable to you? The Spirit of God makes him valuable to you. The Holy Spirit attests to who Jesus Christ is. The Word of God makes him valuable to you. That's, but, but when you know Jesus Christ through his Word and through his Spirit, then you know that he's the most absolutely precious thing anywhere. If you don't know that, you might go to church, but you're not part of the church. I mean, look at what he's done for us. Look at verse number five. He says, you also as living rocks being made alive through his death. That's how you're alive. But now he's made you a rock. Now you might move around a little bit, but you're not supposed to move much. You're supposed to be strong in your faith, standing uh, in your faith for Jesus Christ. You're a rock now, and you're alive. You've been made alive by Jesus Christ. You once were dead, but now you've been made alive. You're being built up into a spiritual house. What's that spiritual house? Is it Calvary Chapel? No, it is the church, the living church. Now, thank goodness, I believe that a lot of the living church is here today in Calvary Chapel. But friends, we can knock this building down tomorrow. We can knock it down tomorrow, and, and the living church is going nowhere. If you're part of the living church, it's not going to affect you one iota, other than we'll have to find a new place to worship on Sunday. But you're, you're a living stone being built up into a spiritual house, a spiritual temple. A spiritual temple for what? To house God. To house the very presence of God. You're a holy priesthood. You're priest unto God. You're priest unto man. You, you're holy. You're separated to do that. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to, to God through Jesus Christ. That's what you've been made a living stone for. You catch that? I want everybody to read that together with me. You don't have to read it out loud, but read it one time. This is what you've been made a living stone for so that you can offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If you just go to church and you don't offer up any spiritual sacrifices, I don't know that you're a living stone. I don't, you might be part of Calvary Chapel, but you might not be part of the true church. Because the true church, we've come to Jesus Christ, who's been rejected by man. We know that he's precious. He's made us alive. And he's made us into his spiritual house for a purpose. For a purpose, not just so you can get to heaven. He did that for a purpose. So that we can offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable through God through Jesus Christ. We are the church. And if you're part of the church, then you're going to be offering up spiritual ex sacrifices acceptable to God. What sacrifices is he talking about? What sacrifices are acceptable to God? Prayer? Prayer? Just any prayer? No, prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, in the will of Jesus Christ. That is a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to Unto God. Our worship. And our praise. I mean, think about your worship and praise this morning. Was it acceptable to God? I mean, were you excited about worshiping God this morning? Were you excited that he's died for you? Were you excited that he gave you life? Were you excited that he made you part of his church? Man, that should motivate us to praise and worship God in spirit and in truth with vigor. Vigor. Y'all sing loud on that last hymn today because I'm going to be watching you. Our offerings. Our offerings. Oh, pastor, now here you go. Everybody grab their wallet. <laughs> Talking about money again. I don't talk about money very often. But your offerings are spiritual sacrifices unto the Lord. That's not spiritual, that's money. Oh, money is one of the most spiritual things you have. Or it affects your spirituality, let me put it that way. Because, because you can de determine just how grateful you are by how much 
money you give. I, and God, you're not under law. You don't hear me tell you you give 10%. I don't ask you for your tax returns to see if you've given 10% like they do in some churches. I don't ask for any of that kind of stuff. I don't know who gives what in this church. We give not grudgingly or of necessity. We give with a cheerful heart. That's what God wants to see. God wants to see you give because you love him, because you're grateful to him. And then our service. Our service is an acceptable sacrifice to God. And that doesn't have to be necessarily in the walls of Calvary Chapel, not at all. Your service to God. Your service that's acceptable to him is, is the service that's guided and empowered by him. That's the acceptable service. Any other service is not acceptable. You go out and do your own thing. You say, I'm going to do this for the Lord because I've decided one day I'm going to do this for the Lord. You know, you're wasting your time. If he guides it and directs it and empowers it, hey, it's acceptable to the Lord. Then verse number six, he says, therefore, therefore it is also contained in scripture. I mean, what, what I'm telling you right here, Peter's saying, all of this preceding stuff in chapter two, it's, it's in scripture. It's contained in scripture. I mean, Isaiah wrote about it year, thousands of years ago. I mean, Isaiah 28, behold, I lay in Zion. What's Zion? The city of God, the capital of the kingdom of God. I lay in Zion, the capital city of the kingdom of God, the chief cornerstone. Who is the chief cornerstone? Jesus Christ, elect, elected before the foundation of the world to die for our sins. He was chosen before the foundation of the world to rule in the millennium. He was chosen before the foundation of the world to rule forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's Jesus Christ. And by the way, he's precious. He's the most valuable thing anywhere. Anywhere. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. You put your trust in him and you will by no means be put to shame. Ever. Never. You will not be put to shame. Look, you, you can pull most cornerstones down and the whole building is going to collapse. But the house of God, the cornerstone that the house of God is built on is the cornerstone. It's none other than Jesus Christ and it is never going to collapse. I mean, it's never coming down. Look at verse number seven. Therefore, you who believe, therefore to you who believe he is precious. He's more valuable than anything in the world. If you really believe, here's a test. If you really believe in Jesus Christ, he is the most valuable thing to you anywhere. If, you, if, if you're not there, you need to get there. And you get there through his word. You get there through sanctification. You get there through prayer. It begins with tasting of the grace of Jesus Christ. The grace, not the law, the grace. You've got a taste of the grace of the cross, of that blood covering you and, and, and cleansing you from all unrighteousness. You've got to come to a point where you really believe that and you trust in that. And when you do, then he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, those who hate him, those who reject him, those who blaspheme his name, to them, let me tell you what, it doesn't matter. This world can blaspheme Jesus until they die. This world can reject Jesus until they die. But it doesn't change who Jesus is. The stone which the builders rejected has become and will always be forever and ever the chief cornerstone. Nobody's moving him out of the way. The ACLU's not going to move him out of the way. The Supreme Court's not going to move him out of the way. The United States is not going to move him out of the way. He is the chief cornerstone forever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen. Upon this stone I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
How sad. Jesus said this stone will either break you or it will grind you to powder. The stone's not going anywhere. It'll either break you and you'll come to the cross and you'll come to Jesus Christ and you'll understand grace and he will become precious to you or this stone will ground you into the ground forever. It's, it's not either or, it's one of the two because it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to those who, who, who don't believe, to those who blaspheme him, to those who reject him. That's what Jesus Christ did. But the rock doesn't move. The rock doesn't move. The rock is either one thing. It is either a stumbling rock or it's a rock you cling to for your salvation. It's one of the two. But the rock is not going anywhere. The rock is not going anywhere. Look at verses. Finish up now. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Who's this word of God for? Every single human being who's ever lived. That's who this word. This word's appointed not just for you, not just for me. It's appointed for everybody. But if you refuse to look at this word, you refuse to believe this word, you can't believe it until you've tasted of the grace. But once you've tasted the grace and you believe it, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. But if you refuse to do that, then you're not only appointed uh, to death, you're appointed to eternal death. I mean, this stumbling bucket, you're going to stumble all the way into the gates of hell. And you're going to get in. You're going to get in. You're going to be welcomed by a horde of demons. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But we are the church. That's not who we are. We are a chosen generation. We've been chosen by God. When were we chosen? We were chosen in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. You're written in the Lamb's book of life. You were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Well, pastor, that's great. How do I get chosen? You choose Jesus Christ. And as soon as you choose Jesus Christ, you know that you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. You're a royal priesthood. Catch that. A royal priesthood. That makes sense that we shouldn't be full of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and evil speaking. We represent who? We, we are royal ambassadors. We're ambassadors to Jesus Christ, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Friends, we are a royal priesthood. We're the priesthood of the King of kings and Lord of lords. We represent him. We're a priest unto him and we're priest unto each other. And we represent Christ in all that we do. We're a holy nation. His own special people. John says to many who believe in him, he gave them power, power to become sons and daughters of God. Makes you pretty special. Don't think any of you realize just how special you are in God's eyes the creator of the universe, has his eyes on you. The one we know, the Lord Jesus, who spoke all things into existence by his word. You think maybe he can speak good things into your life? You think maybe he can speak a solution into your problems? You better believe he can. And you're his own special people. But now I'll tell you what, if you're, if you're full of malice, and anger, and bitterness, and deceit, and hypocrisy, of those things, God's going to be hard on you, on us. He's going to be tough on us, because he still, he loves us. We're his own special people. But we're his own special people for a purpose. We have a purpose to offer up sacrifices acceptable to him, to proclaim Look at this part, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, you have a purpose once you're saved, to proclaim the praises of Jesus Christ. And how do we proclaim the praises? Do we just run around saying praise God with a, with a bottle of whiskey in our hand? That won't work. 
No, we, we praise God by our lives, by the lives we live for him. Who once were not a people, you know you, weren't, you, you were nowhere in the game. When you read the early part of the Bible, it was all about the Jews. You weren't, weren't you guys, you, we never had a chance. You read the first part of the Bible. I'm glad it didn't end in Malachi. Some people say it ends. Man, I'm glad it picked back up in Matthew. And I'm glad Isaiah talked about him being the light to the Gentiles. I'm glad about those things. Because I was not part of the people of God, but we now have obtained mercy, and we are. We who have not obtained mercy have obtained mercy. You know, you could take the cross, and we could have put a plaque, right there at the bottom of that cross that would read much like that plaque at the stadium in front of Marshall. It would say something like this, we are the church. And we're reminded of the awesome strength that can flow through the people, through, from a people with a common bond, bonded through tragedy. And we've been bonded through tragedy, the tragedy of the fall, the tragedy of the cross, and the tragedy of our own lives. We've been bonded together so that we can praise the one who saved us. See, going to church doesn't make you part of the church. Being a member of a local church doesn't make you part of the church. Being American doesn't make you part of the church. The only way that we can say we're part of the church is if we've tasted of the grace of Jesus Christ. If through his word we have come to him. If by his power we have become living stones to where we're built together as a true church. If by his spirit we offer up sacrifices worthy of his, of, of his name. If by his grace we have obtained mercy and we have been called out of darkness into his life. Hey, if you can claim all of those things, then you can shout with everybody else, we are the church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being part of your church. We thank you for the privilege of being made alive through Jesus Christ. Lord, those of us who once lived in darkness, you've now brought us into your marvelous light. Lord, you've changed us. You've sanctified us by your word. You've made Jesus the most precious thing there is in our lives. Lord, so help us to put away these things that tarnish our witness. Put away these things that make us look like the rest of the world. And help us to really live our lives in gratitude for what you've done through the cross. I just thank you for all of that. I thank you in Jesus' name. It's in his name I pray. Amen.